Thanks for downloading this episode of Lives on the Lines from the Essex and South Suffolk Community Rail Partnership. This is the podcast series that takes you through the heart and history of our great Anglian landscape. I'm Catherine Kerr, and I'll be travelling the railway lines of Essex, Cambridgeshire, Norfolk and Suffolk to meet people in these counties. I've been invited on board Greater Anglia's shiny new trains to uncover the stories of people living, working and volunteering along the lines, and who work with the area's community rail partnerships to help ensure the railway meets the needs of the communities it serves. Today, we're beginning our journey at Manningtree, boarding Greater Anglia's Mayflower Line and riding all the way to Harwich in the east. The whole journey takes 22 minutes, but as we follow the line of the River Store into Essex and the sea, I'll stop off to meet friends who will tell me about life in the area and share a little history too. It's only a short ride from Manningtree to my first stop, Mistley. As this town and village are so close, they almost count as one. As soon as you arrive at Misley, you're hit by the scent of malt. The Edme Malt Extract Works Tower and some beautiful brick maltings buildings stand alongside the line here. They're home to businesses busily turning cereals into flowers and flakes for our hungry nation. The old station building now includes a beauty parlour. Tempting to stop off, but I'm due down the road in a minute. A short walk downhill unveils the mighty store view and brings you Misley Towers, two epic neoclassical buildings which remain standing even now the church they once flanked has gone. They're just opposite the village green, where we're meeting our first guest, Bob Gooding. Bob, lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you too, Catherine. Yes, my name is Bob Gooding. I'm chair of the Managery Museum and District uh, History Group. And we're here sitting on a bench on Missley Green. Hovering above us are these towers from the, the malt extract factory. Yes, that's correct, yes. Up to the end of the 1600s, Missley was just a sleepy little village, really, nestled on the banks of the southern side of the River Stour. Um, not a lot going on. The main uh, work was labouring on the fields, farming, and a little bit of boat building industry on the quay, and fishing as well. Just going into the 1700s, 1709, and an Edward Rigby inherited the Missley estate. So all of this was an estate? It was. They had a wonderful view looking onto the river, Stour, looking right down to Harwich. And what a wonderful sight it must have been to wake up and seeing that lovely view from your window. But you do get to do that every day, don't you, Bob? <laughs> well, I do, because I must admit, I was born in Manningtree and... Uh, my back windows looked right out onto the river at Manningtree. So, yes, most of my life I've looked out onto a river, so it's been lovely. Well, I can see why you've stayed. <laughs> so tell me a bit about how this area connects up, because there's some confusion, isn't there, about whether they are really separate. Misley's a very small village. Manningtree's, I think, the smallest town in England or something. It is. It's, it's, uh, it's alleged to be the smallest town in England. Um, I think there's one or two others claim that as well, but... Uh, Yes, it is a very, very small area. And then there's Lawford, which completes the trio. And Lawford trio. completes the trio, yes. So the stir <laughs> is behind us, <laughs> and behind these grand towers with little round windows in front of them. Why, why are they here? What do they do? Well, when the Rigby's moved down here, their church was in at Missley Heath, which was a couple of miles up the road from where we're sitting now. It's a bit of a trek for it Sunday, isn't it? It was very much of a trek for local inhabitants. Mm. And the first Richard Rigby decided to build a new church, uh, actually right in the village here. That was uh, 
dedicated in 1735. Unfortunately, he never saw the start of that because he died in 1730. And his son, the second Richard Rigby, took it on. There's a lot of criticism at the time of the hall as well, being rather plain and that. And uh, he was a man who had a lot of wealth. And so most of his life he was an MP or worked in Parliament. And he had a lot of influential visitors to the hall. One was a Horace Walpole who, who came, who was the son of Robert Walpole, the Prime Minister. And he's a writer. And when he went back to London, he really criticised the Missley estate, saying, you know, it's very plain and drab and things like that. They weren't flashing um, the cash then? No, not at that time. So he employed the, the Adams brothers, the Robert Adam, uh, the famous Scottish architect, oh, wow. to design, redesign Missley Hall. So he was, he was like really not having that criticism. Absolutely was he? He's not. He's going to go hard or go home. And did he go to town? The Missley <laughs> Hall... Had the wonderful Adam's ceilings in there, the drawing rooms were fantastic, the furniture, paintings were absolutely top-notch, top-class. And he also designed all the parkland and the area around here and the gardens and everything. It was um, classed as one of the best areas in the country. Because when Horace Walpole visited, revisited a few years um, after that, he had to admit that uh, it was, was a wonderful area. Oh, so the plain old church that was here... Yes. was uh, done away with as part of the grand plan. Well, it was built into the, the new church and uh, the Adams brothers designed the, the twin towers on either end on the east and west side of the oh. church. So these estates obviously employ lots of people, have employed a lot of people in the area and been responsible for the way it has grown up and been shaped. But rumbling away across the green now, we have the Maltings factory. We do, yes. How now, long has Maltings really started by the first Richard Rigby. Oh, OK. Yes, uh, in the early 1700s, he had Rigby Maltings built. Why is Maltings so big along this part of the... Well, because this area, the Tendring 100 area, is really good for barley growing. It's very open, flat fields, ideal use um, for cereal growing. Uh, it made sense for them to actually malt the barley here on more or less on site, if you like. And then it was actually taken by boat to London and different areas by barge and, uh, and that. Uh, as soon as I stepped off the train, I could smell Maltesers. You can. It is a, it's a smell here that everybody's got used to. <laughs> you know your home yeah, when. You do. You do. When you smell that, <laughs> get off the train, you smell that, you know your home. <laughs> <laughs> well, shall we have a wander on up that way then? Yes, certainly you we can. You can show me yes. a few more sites. Yes, certainly. Yes, well, we'll have a wander down to the quay, if you like. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, have a look down there. Let me get my big rucksack on. Well done. Here we go. So, Bob, tell me about you. What was it like growing up in Manningtree? Growing up in Manningtree, it was, it was brilliant for, for me. I had a lovely childhood. I was born in the old Packet Hotel, which was an early 15th century building. And uh, yes, I had a lovely time um, just going down to the quay and watching the local fishermen and fowlers bringing in their catches. Uh, they'd done the fishing in the summertime and the wildfowling in the wintertime. Uh, they had their gunning punts in the winter. Wow. And uh, all these were taken up to London by, by train. And also eels was very popular, of course, eels. in London. They used to go up in eel boxes up, up, to, up to London. So how long's yes. the rugby ramble? Uh, lasts about an hour and a half. But if I do ramble myself, it could be two or, <laughs> two or three hours. <laughs> well spent, I can imagine. <laughs> yes. um, lovely trees and open meadows. And also a walk along the river between Manningtree and Missley. It's always wonderful. And the river changes all the time, different moods of the river. 
You can see it all different spates of the tide um, from the very misty, misty, eerie sort of um, times to the frosty, snowy areas. And then the summertime when everything is in bloom, the salt marsh um, is all green. And uh, But Manning Tree in itself is, is, a, is a lovely little town. Um, a lot of the buildings are have Georgian fronts now, uh, dating from the 1700s, but behind these Georgian fronts there's a lot of interesting old timber frame buildings. What, even so, older ones? Even the old, yeah, even older than Georgian times. So. We yes, better introduce yeah. one of Miss Lee's most famous residents. <laughs> he is indeed, yes, the notorious Matthew Hopkins, Witchfinder General. He came about during the uh, Civil War period. Um, so there was a lot going on in England at the time? There was, a lot of unrest. He picked up really on James I's uh, laws of witchcraft and he really uh, thought, well, I can get rich pretty quick on this. And he lived quite close to actually two of the so-called Manningtree witches, Helen Clark, I think, and then Elizabeth Gooding. How do we define witches then? What, what were they doing that was so witchy in modern times? Well, people think anything untoward happened to them, then there's uh, uh, it's all witchcraft and uh, they were cursed and... Uh, they blamed certain people, especially elderly women seem to have got the blame for it. Silly things like cows suddenly taken ill or their cat dying or something or other going on. So something like that happens and you point to the old lady down the street and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's her. So Matthew Hopkins then would take her name and uh, try and get a confession out of her by d- different methods. Um, by pricking her, trying to find the devil's mark on her. Pricking her? Pricking her with a needle to see if she bled or not. And, and what was the kind of desired outcome of that? Well, if she bled, she was innocent. Um, if she didn't, the devil owned her. Um, also look for the devil's mark, uh, a mole or, or some blemish on the skin would um, point to the devil actually drinking blood from her, from that uh, particular part of her body. Now, Hopkins was called the Witchfinder General, self-proclaimed, wasn't he? Yes. But, and, and he wasn't just someone who uh, thought he'd jump on board the bandwagon during these troubled times. He took it to heart so much and, and made, made that his job that he, I think, accounts for about 20% of all murders, shall we call them? That is correct, yes. He went throughout East Anglia, not just the Manningtree area, but throughout East Anglia he travelled. And that was, that's correct, about 20% of all witches... Between the 15th and late 18th century? Yes, yes, uh, were owned by, by Hopkins, really. So about 100 people? About 100 people, it was 100 people. How yes. on earth did yes. you get away with it? Well, just don't know. It, it was the times when uh, everybody was concentrating on the civil war in the country, and it was really troubled times. And, of course, every village he, he went to and he found a witch, then the village or town would have to pay him. The, the money for for finding these witches. Doing them a favor. So he, yes. he went around duping all of these East Anglian villages. Yes. Did he go further afield? Yes, but mainly East Anglia he went, uh, possibly up into Huntingdonshire, Northamptonshire, but mainly Essex, Suffolk and Norfolk and Cambridgeshire were these his areas he went. Well, it's been an absolute privilege to meet you and have a little bit of a taste of the Rigby Ramble here today. Thanks so much for taking me around, Miss Lee Bob. That's fine, Catherine. That's my pleasure. Always willing to show off my hometowns. <laughs> <laughs> Back on board and my next stop is the village of Rabness. Have you heard of it? This gem is the starting point of many a beautiful ramble. And for those of you who can't get enough of the river views and the bird life, it's a must visit. 
It's also home to a rather unusual living art installation, as we'll find out soon. In fact, this is rather an artistic line to travel. Manningtree is not only the start of the Mayflower line, but the gateway to Constable Country, so named after the revolutionary English landscape painter John Constable, who took his inspiration from it. The artist was inspired by the views of nearby Dedham Vale and the village of Flatford, where his corn merchant father owned a mill. The family kept a boat at Misley, which would carry corn onwards to London, so you can really get a feel for how the river was once a vital connection between all these locations we're exploring by train today. One of Constable's most well-known paintings is the Haywain, which pictures a Flatford of days gone by. It shows a horse-drawn wagon at a ford in the store between Suffolk and Essex, and today you can visit the village and stand in the real-life scene. The tenant farmer's cottage that makes an appearance in several of Constable's works also stands here still, just a couple of miles from Manningtree. Today there's something that's still so romantic about the landscape here. I've passed through Manningtree plenty of times in my life and I'm always struck by the stillness of sunset over pasture. Perhaps my experience has been influenced by Constable. But I have a feeling this landscape and the store's winding, ever-changing image has always inspired those who live here and visit. As you arrive at Rabness, you're greeted by a cheerful mural painted 20 years ago by the art group between Rabness and Dovercourt, which is further down the line. This is Rabness. I'm on my way to meet Julia Prigg, who's station adopter here. She helps keep an eye on things and make sure it's a nice environment for anyone using the railways. But that's rather selling short the huge amount of work that goes into this special station and its garden. This garden was once the station master's garden, but now it's a public spot, flanked by green gauge trees, with benches for quiet reflection, an old signal post, and even an insect hotel. This branch line enjoys support from the Essex and South Suffolk Community Rail Partnership, which is funded by the train operator and local authorities. They work together to ensure that the railway meets the needs of the communities it serves, they carry out mutually beneficial projects and promote rail travel to help the lines here thrive. In Julia's home, there's a shelf packed with awards for her service in the Community Rail Partnership, and you can see why. I've been here 19 years, prior to that nine years in Harwich, so not very far away, and we mix a match with Manningtree as well and Misley. This is a really special part of the world. It's just this kind of sense of peace and calm. It is on the whole, unless we have a house built by Grace and Perry <laughs> yeah. to take on board. It looks diamond and triangle inspired. It's sort of green and red and yellow, a design I've never seen anything like before. And this is the famous House for Essex by Grace and Perry. Yes, yeah. apparently Grace and Perry had, um, he's always been an Essex man, born and bred and he's been trying to um, market it a bit sell it and point out its beauties but he concocted this story coming from a true story about this Essex girl Julie who'd had all sorts of happy and tragic events in her life so the house is about this story and the tapestries of course that he made that hang in the house, and they are amazing artworks, floor to ceiling. It's extraordinary inside it out, and it's, a, mm. it's let out and as it's a holiday a, home, isn't it? It is a, just a holiday, a short, short break holiday home. Peaceful, of course. Very peaceful. 
The Nature Reserve is divided into two sections. Something I only learned recently was that a lady that lived along the B Road mm -hmm. donated two fields some years ago, which meant you could walk from one wood into the other. And oh, wow. so you can walk all the way to Harwich, really. Of course. I took a little walk down there earlier and it was a really special view, actually, when I got down to the bottom of the hill. I mean, coming back up with harder. But mm. um, up down at the bottom of the hill, just looked out over a very quiet field and I could hear birds that I couldn't name. Mm. I know it's a NRSPB reserve. Mm. And um, was just looking out across the store with the tide out and then to one side and you could see all the way down to Felixstowe. That's right. Incredible views. It's right. an amazing bird reserve in the winter when all the waders come. The big bay is called Copperass Bay. They did get copper in some form over the years from there. And the trees, the chestnut trees that uh, you see either side of the railway line, they used to use for boat building, which is something I'd never have thought of. It used to be a huge swannery. They've gradually come back to Misty, but apparently whatever it was they used to put in the river from the maltings, the swans liked to consume and then as the river got cleaned up and the <laughs> process got more and more mechanised, this wasn't going into the water and the swans began to go. Got fed up and they found really a new drinking hole. But anyway, the very kindly brewery, they have put something back in the water. Not polluting, but... Just nice for swans. To bring the swans back. That's fantastic. Yes. Now we must talk about the garden because this is your labour of love, isn't it? Yes, the, the village had more or less planned and set it up before I came, planned the right trees and shrubs which have stood the test of time. But the members of the village went all over the country to find sleepers to make a base for the garden, restored the lawn and then planted it up. And uh, it's inter been interesting to see over 20 years when the three ladies of Black Boy Lane used to do the garden. They had it very bright and very colourful annuals but labour-intensive, <laughs> and yes. as the climate's got drier, that's got more difficult. So I've gone in for shrubs and so on. And then, as you've seen, the children have made this um, bee hotel. One's tried to put um, extra lavenders and plants like that to encourage the bees. The ironwork, which is the shape of a boiler and the wheels, beautifully done. They were factored locally by an engineering firm. What do you like about living here? I do like the peace and quiet, but um, obviously it's nice to have visitors in the garden. And we do have a lot of ramblers who get off the trains here. When it's very hot, one nice thing that happens is all the local lads, grown up as they are, as soon as the weather turns really hot, they come back for a swim in the river. I love come to see that. <laughs> but they come back from wherever they've gone off to, come back home and yeah, go for a swim. Yes. Yes, and they do have um, a sports day on the lovely little field which was donated to the village. And then we have five things like five-a-side football and uh, three or four generations playing on the field. <laughs> How brilliant. Well, yes. What a great place to visit. And thank you so much for welcoming me to Ravness. It's, oh. it's beautiful. It's been lovely meeting you and seeing your <laughs> wonderful garden. <laughs> Watching the golden light on the store as it weaves in and out of view is quite hypnotic and it makes for a stunning rail journey. But the next leg of this adventure sees quite a change in the landscape 
as the river widens, the land flattens and gives way to a more watery industrial view, stacked with shipping containers, cranes and seabirds. We're heading towards Harwich now, but first the train will stop at the blue flag seaside town of Dovercourt, then it's on to Harwich International. The station meets with the port terminus here on the Essex bank of the store, opposite neighbouring Felixstowe to the north. The station opened in 1883 and once had a hotel and a boat train for passengers using ferries to enter Europe. Today it serves both passengers and freight, with one million ferry users passing through each year on their way to the Netherlands. As we approach Harwich Town with its long shipbuilding heritage, we also approach the birthplace of perhaps one of the world's most famous vessels. The namesake of this railway line, the Mayflower, bore settlers from their Puritan roots here in England to the New World in 1620. This group of people are today known as the Pilgrims, or the Pilgrim Fathers. They'd been persecuted for refusing to follow the compulsory Church of England practices and fled to Holland before making the arduous sea crossing to America. The contract or compact they drew up on landing in Massachusetts required everyone to vote democratically on decisions made in the colony they established there. This written constitution is sometimes talked about as one of the founding moments in American democracy. So that was one important vote. To find out more and explore Harwich, I'm meeting David Whittle, vice chairman of the Harwich Society and also its archivist. Safe to say, if there's anything to know about Harwich, it's either in David's head or he's already digitised it for one of the town's many museums, six of which are run by their volunteers. Hello, are you David? That's right. Hello, lovely to meet you. Welcome, the sun is shining for you. Uh, thank you very much. Did you organise that? Specially arranged. <laughs> well, it's an absolutely gorgeous day and it's been such a stunning journey in. And it goes along the Stour, which is absolutely outstanding. Everyone some says it differently. Some people say the Stour. Stour. That's the posh people. Okay. The Harwich people call it the Stour. Stour. So I would say to you, would you like a tour for an hour? <laughs> we'll make our way along to the quayfront from here. Well, tourists have visited here on this line and when it was opened. Oh, most definitely. Mm. And the other form of transport which was in use was the paddle steamers uh, from the 1830s onwards, even before the railway arrived. The paddle steamers used to leave Tower Bridge, in fact. Oh, my goodness. Tower Bridge, OK? Mm -hmm. The Victorians were starting to have a little bit of free time mm -hmm. and they wanted to come and sit on the beach. And Harrod is the northernmost seaside port in Essex, is that right? It is. It's so, right in the northeast corner. So as we look across the water, we can actually see Felixstowe, which we is a whole indeed. different county. Yes, it is. The two rivers meet. the River Stour mm -hmm. and the River Orwell, which comes down from Ipswich. They come together to make Harwich Harbour. I see. So we're coming around the corner into the dock... And I'm, I'm actually feeling a bit like a borrower or something because there's all these enormous boys and piles yep. of chains waiting to be restored and in front of us a huge boat Yeah, now the, the ships you see in front of us are Trinity House tenders. Mm -hmm. They actually put the boys in the water. These are the ships that you can see the boys being landed on because mm -hmm. it all works by um, solar panels now to keep the lights going. There's no shortage of light today. It's so bright, no, I can barely get my eyes open. Yeah. It's just lovely. And the water is such an amazing colour. Yeah. Sort of greeny, turquoisey blue. Harwich Harbour is the largest harbour between the Humber and the Thames. It's available any tide, any weather. 
and it's been a great place of sanctuary doing storms for many many years it's a safe haven it's a natural harbour so you've you've lived here all your life right yes i'm not telling you how long (laughs) what do you love most about living here I say it's my hobby. My wife calls it my obsession, and that is the history of Harwich. And I still have so much to learn. Well, it it sounds like there's absolutely centuries and centuries of heritage here, particularly maritime heritage. Yes, we can go back to around about 1100. Well, there's one very important connection Harwich has to some of the early settlers in the New World, isn't there? There certainly is. Well, first of all, let's start with um, Christopher Newport. He was born in Harwich and christened in the local church in December 1561. He was to go on and actually command three ships that actually founded Jamestown in 1607. Jamestown is in... America, (laughs) yes. First English-speaking settlement in America. You know, he was Admiral of the Fleet, Harwich man. So, and the next one was Christopher Jones and if you look down the street there can you see the White House? Yes, down that on Perfectly Straight Cobbled Street. That is the house to Christopher Jones, that is where he used to live. Christopher Jones, a captain of, of... the Mayflower. The Mayflower. And the Mayflower took the pilgrims to America in 1620. The Mayflower Pact went on to be included in the uh, American Independence and the Bill of Rights. So why did these people leave lovely well, Harwich in the first place? Well, day? they started, they went to Holland to, to see if they could be accepted there. They wanted to go to their church and do their particular services and that. They went to Amsterdam, they didn't get on there, and eventually they went to a place called Leiden in Holland, mm-hmm. and they settled there. But when the chance to go on the Mayflower... There were two ships, actually. There was one from Holland and the Mayflower. And um, you can still see the Pilgrims' houses in Leiden today as well. So they became known as the Pilgrims, didn't they? But they were um, Puritans, English Puritans. They were Puritans, yes. Yeah. But to say, this town is a very small town. It's got quite a lump of history in America. Looks like it's getting busy down here. There's lots of uh, these day trippers, tourists. There's always people come to... uh, See what's going on. You just have to sit here, look. Mm. There's always something going on. And the paddle steamers used to depart from the pier here. 1854, <laughs> couldn't be more Victorian than that, could it? <laughs> Hi, Al. Hello. <laughs> this is uh, another Harwich Society Museum. It's a cafe, you can come and sit on the pier here, watch the world go by. And see the water say, beneath your feet through the slats. That's what all the children do. They look through and they see the water. Yes, that's about my level. This is a starting point for our guided walks. Mm. We do one every Saturday. It's free of charge. Mm-hmm. But if you bring a group here, we can tailor make it for you. Uh, we have music. We have art. You name it, we have it. Uh, also in October, there's probably the largest sea shanty festival in the sea shanty festival sea shanty festival it's usually in october so do people go along and they properly sing sea shanties and play what do they play well they go from pub to pub it's very much what would you do with a drunken sailor situation (laughs) (laughs) yes possibly horrible joke there's so much packed into every square meter isn't there absolutely where we're walking now 
would have been the site of the wall which actually surrounded Harwich. Harwich was a, ta- a wall town mm-hmm. by the middle of the 1300s with gates through it to go through there. We'd even have a water gate with a portcullis in it. Wow. Which forms part of our badge of Harwich. Ah, so it does, yeah. <laughs> Before America existed, this was one of the major ports in the whole country. These are the large roads, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. They go They're roughly north to south. The little roads go from east to west and they're offset from each other so when the northeast wind come it wouldn't blow through the town. Look at the building on the corner. They're built round or the corner's missing. So they are, they're rounded. Why is that then? Because if the horse and cart swept round it wouldn't take the corner off, the corner's Ah. already gone. This is the Electric Palace built by Charles Thurston. Now Charles Thurston was an East Anglian showman. Mm Before this was built, he used to bring his travelling fare into Harwich Green with a steam engine and pulling all the trucks behind them. But in 1909, the government legislated and said, films must not be shown in fairgrounds or in village halls because the film used to ignite, the projectors used to ignite. And he he actually bought this one. It was opened in November 1911. So it's an actual purpose-built cinema? That is cinema. It's possibly one of the oldest cinemas in the country. I believe there's one in Brighton, which is 1910. Wow. And if you look, that's the original um, box office. It's bright red. It says admission, one shilling above it. At the back there, you'll see the Harwich Society Lifeboat Museum. How many museums does the Harwich Society look after? Six. Six Six museums. All run by volunteers. That's incredible. Nobody gets paid a penny. That's incredible. They all love this town. Are you okay to sprint up here? You up lead, the hill, you yeah? lead, David. You lead. I'll follow. Oh, oh that smell, that fresh, salty air. <laughs> Harridge air. Harridge air. This is Harridge Beach. The blue flag beach is the other side. You know, You've you, got more you than could, one beach. Oh, yeah. You can walk all the way around Harridge into Dovercourt. You can walk for miles along the seafront. Enjoy the sea breezes and the golden sands as you walk along. So David, as we walk back across the green now, in the direction of the railway station, which seems strangely close considering how how far we seem to have walked around the harbour, there's a little red brick building over here which is quite special, isn't it? Yes, it's not so little because you can't see it all from here. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's um, a kind benefactor has sort of purchased it. It was a factory. And um, we're turning it into a museum, the Harridge Museum. Oh, wow. And we hope to next year it should be open. Uh, we have lots of artefacts, and you can see we have lots of history. Uh, we have lots of documents, lots of photographs, lots of oil paintings, lots of pictures. So wow. it's going to be a real hive of information for Harridge. Well, it's been a fantastic taste of Harrod today. Thank you for a, just a, a little introduction to the town. And I hope many people can come here and enjoy these sites and all the museums and hard work of the volunteers. We will be very pleased to see you. <laughs> Thanks, David. I'm so amazed by the amount of energy and knowledge held by this community and the 100 volunteers who are all so passionate about sharing their historic hometown. What a spectacular day it's been along the Mayflower line. We've gone from inspiring pastoral landscapes to witch hunting, thankfully a thing of the past, then on to incredible bird life and shoreside industry. We've followed the store, or stour, depending on how you want to say it. 
to meet the Orwell, and what a place to finish. The sparkling blue harbour at Harwich really is something else. Maybe I just got lucky with the weather, but sitting with the other visitors on the pier for a coffee, there is so much to take in. From the old light boats with their solar-powered lamps to the many, many museums. The Mayflower Line is bursting with life, and I've been so lucky to spend time with some inspiring people today. Let's hope you get a chance to meet some on your own visit. Next time, we head back up to Manningtree to change for Mark's Tay, where our journey will take us through steam history, mythological dragons, and to the birthplace of another great English landscape painter. I was called a train enthusiast, but underneath it all, at the end of the day, it's not so much the trains, it's the history side of things, which is so vast, and also the social impacts as well on the local communities that these railways had. Must have been a huge impact at one time. When you look at that viaduct, for instance, down there, Join me next time along Greater Anglia's Gainsborough Line for more Lives on the Lines. The Community Rail Partnerships and Greater Anglia are proud of the work they're doing. I would love you to come and visit one day. Just make sure you come on one of their shiny new trains so you can enjoy the free Wi-Fi and all those creature comforts. You can find out more about travel with Greater Anglia at greateranglia.co.uk.